Well, good evening, everybody. Um, welcome, uh, and welcome especially to Andrew. Welcome back, <laughs> I might even say. Um, as you probably know, uh, Andrew has done more than I think any economist in the world uh, to unravel uh, the causes of happiness. Uh, and uh, that is uh, why we've asked him to come here. Um, what he started on uh, 17 years ago was uh, at the time a really imaginative thing to do which was to take these population surveys in which people happened to have been asked questions about how happy they were and actually to try and explain them. Uh, it's such an obvious thing to do looking back and it's absolutely astonishing that it could have been done actually 15, 20 years before Andrew did it. Uh, so that, that is the, uh, the nature of uh, original thought. Um, and I think that that series of studies that he did showing in a quantitative sense what matters to us, that's what it comes down to, what aspects of our life make more difference to our well-being uh, than what others. Uh, this was probably done more than anything else uh, to put this whole well-being subject uh, on the map and to create this head of steam behind using well-being as the basis for um, public policy decisions because we we can say things about what are more important and what aren't. Uh, that's how Andrew got started. Um, but I know he's thinking quite rightly that he's done a lot else. Uh, he never rests, actually. Um, so every year, two or three wonderful articles arrive on my desk. Uh, about well, They're always unexpected about some completely new issue which he's been investigating to do either with the causes of happiness, um, like sex, example, uh, or the consequences of happiness, like divorce, and so on. Um, so uh, we had Daniel Kahneman here last, last time I was on this stage anyway, uh, and there couldn't be any more fitting uh, person to follow on uh, than Andrew. It's also extremely fitting uh, that he should be here, because this, the, this series is the 21st uh, anniversary celebration of the Centre for Economic Performance, and Andrew was one of the founder members of uh, our centre. Uh, and actually, we've been trying to remember, but I believe he's the first person who invited Daniel Kahneman uh, to the LSE all those years ago. Uh, Andrew joined us as a Labour economist uh, when he'd been writing really important papers on uh, wage behaviour, uh, unemployment and the like, uh, and he left us as an economist of happiness uh, when he went to Warwick, which is uh, where he currently is, except that he's visiting Bonn. And um, I think that this transition from uh, being a labour economist uh, to an economist of happiness is one which more people ought to make. Uh, so <laughs> Andrew is a great example to us all as a scholar and uh, as somebody who can see uh, the wood for the trees. So Andrew, welcome back and uh, tell us about her behaviour and keeping up with the Joneses. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming along to the lecture tonight. Uh, thank you for the kind uh, introduction. Richard, it's a pleasure to be back in the London School of Economics and may I wish the Centre for Economic Performance a very happy 21st <laughs> birthday. 
I remember, maybe you do as well on your own, I remember my 21st birthday. I haven't drunk vodka since. <laughs> anyway, for those who don't know the, the scientific content of the Centre for Economic Performance in detail, I'm here in part to tell you that this is one of the most important empirical social science units in the world, and I take off my hat to all the previous members and wish for the future the CEP, the Centre for Economic Performance, the, the very best of luck. It won't need luck from me. It's uh, going to continue to do very important work. Now, I'm going to be interested today, and I hope you will be interested also, in uh, what we might uh, think of as imitative behaviour, the foundations of imitative actions in human beings, and in particular in the aggregate form of those something I'll call, I hope you think straightforwardly, herd behaviour in humans. Sometimes just for brevity I might refer to this as herding in humans. I would like to understand this because my instinct is this, this phenomenon lies at the heart of a proper understanding of, of our economy. But much more than that, surely herding in humans is fundamental to society, probably throughout social science. That's what I'm going to argue, among other things, uh, today. Uh, presumably, unusually for this room and this institution, I'm going to talk quite a lot about what you might describe as real herd behaviour. You and I are going to look at evidence on how animal herds behave, and herding, or more generally clustering-like behaviour, is found, of course, very broadly throughout the animal kingdom. This seems to me an extremely interesting issue in its own right. So if we think about my bird picture here, actually, why is it that birds cluster in the sky? Why is that? And if we think about the fish below the surface of the ocean, why is it that they swim together in clusters? These are uh, rays uh, in the ocean, and you can see that they're swimming close to a predator. I will come back to all of these, these things you can imagine. You know how economists like to give life advice and advice about the economy? You've probably run into a few like that. I'm also going to give you tonight a tip, a strategic tip, nothing to do with how to make money. If later on in the cool London air you're walking along the Strand and you see padding towards you on the, perhaps thumping towards you on the pavement, this gentleman here, I'm going to give you strategic advice on what you might want to do, perhaps a, um, a more substantial version of this uh, gentleman. You get the thought experiment. But let's start with a longer-run perspective. Men think in herds. They go mad in herds. They only recover their senses slowly. These are the words of C. Mackay. Now, you might think that C. Mackay was writing in the editorial pages of the Financial Times in 2008, perhaps or in the Wall Street Journal op-ed page equivalent. Or maybe these words are from the San Francisco Chronicle just last week. In case you don't know, in some parts of the USA, in some sub-areas, house prices have now fallen by 50%. In fact, the history uh, is much longer on these remarks. This comes from a book published in the 1840s by Mr. Charles Mackay about the madness of crowds, a book that I still I recommend to you if you're interested in this topic. By a kind of linguistic coincidence, 20 or 30 years later, there was another book with a vaguely similar title published 
And this is a novel, a famous novel by Thomas Hardy, Far From the Madding Crowd. If you remember early on in that novel, there's a disturbing, a powerful scene where a dog gets into a field with a herd of sheep. And that field is high up on the edge of a cliff. And sheep do what uh, they are, as it were, supposed to do for evolutionary reasons. They, those sheep uh, ran and twisted, uh, intermingled with each other. But eventually, in Hardy's novel, Frenzy takes over the herd and they crash as a community to their doom from the, I'm sorry if you're a vegetarian, they, they crash from the cliff to the rocks below. And I like to think of that as conveying, of course this is fiction, but it conveys an important issue that surrounds the herd instinct. 99.9% of the time this is probably going to be effective for the community and the individual animals or people. But by its nature, when members of a community act to copy per se, rather than uh, follow some externally guided logic, there is, by the nature of that activity, if you think about it, the seed uh, of danger, indeed very occasionally the seed of potential destruction for that group. And I will come back to such issues if I may. So. I'm going to argue that herd behavior is very often natural and individually rational, but it has this dangerous potential. As this is a high-powered intellectual institution, I thought I'd better have a high-powered intellectual graphic, so there it is. Mm -hmm. I like this fellow over here, he's looking down and thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> Uh, today we're going to look at different kinds of evidence, uh, partly on humans, of course, and partly on uh, non-human animals. We should bear in mind that humans are part of the animal kingdom too. We'll look at evidence on what goes on inside your brain as your, insofar as we can tell, your relative income goes up and down. Literally speaking, we'll look at data on blood oxygenation levels to the reward areas of your brain. Uh, I'll also show you, if I may, statistical evidence of a different kind. Uh, cutting a long story short, this evidence will come from what we might describe as happiness equations, where we take mental well-being scores for random samples of people. We treat those scores as a kind of dependent variable. If you've got an economics degree, you might want to call it proxy utility. And from such evidence, uh, I'll show you, we find all sorts of interesting things to do with relativities. And finally, we'll look at some of the mathematics on actual herd behavior. I'm going to say another, a number of other things uh, as I go along. Uh, these will be slightly more technical. I'm hoping that at least 80% of the lecture is in reasonably plain English. But, but this bit here is a little more technical, so I hope you'll bear with me if uh, you don't come from a social science research background per se. I think happiness data, I'll mean by that answers in happiness or satisfaction or mental health surveys offer us interesting potential as proxy utility numbers. I've clipped in there a picture of Paul Samuelson's famous early book. That's the first book I ever read in economics and it told one, probably not very explicitly, that you shouldn't do that. And economists have for a long time accepted that. That is, one should not use happiness data. Now interestingly, Nobody ever put forward evidence to suggest why that should be the case. In other words, this was never treated, surely as it should be, as an empirical issue. It must be an empirical issue whether we should use such data, whether they are reliable for whatever purpose we have in mind. Second, I'm going to argue that there are strong relative effects on utility. 
So if you want to understand how happy I am, don't ask me how much I earn. Ask me how much more I earn than Richard Layard. That's the, that's the key thing. Or the other way around. You get the idea. So why is my income? Why star is Lord Layard's income? And although, of course, I'm not at all suggesting that we go through our lives conceptualizing this all the time in a very literal way, there's a great deal of evidence that, at least subconsciously, humans do this enormously. And that's something I'll come back to. And third, now this will be the most mathematical point of all, I suppose. I'm going to argue that a crucial role throughout social science is played by the curvature of a utility function defined over relative status. Now, what on earth would I mean by that? Let's imagine that I get happiness from having higher status. I won't define in exactly what sense. I get, or you get higher happiness from having higher status. Here's the question. Do you get happiness at a, an accelerating rate from status, going up faster and faster? Or do you get diminishing marginal utility from status? Yes, you like to be ahead of the, your neighbor with the big BMW. But as you get further and further ahead, do you just get diminishing increments? That's going to turn out to be very important, even though, to the best of my knowledge, social scientists never say that. In humans, I'm going to argue that concavity of that part of the utility function, my caring about status, leads to imitation and en masse to herd behavior. Whereas convexity, which is the accelerating form, leads to deviance. I'll come back to all of this if I may. And finally, I'm going to suggest that over the next 20 years, maybe it will take uh, 100 to happen in a big way, I think economics is going to move more and more towards using what we might call hard science data. And economists will publish more and more in regular science journals and less, although of course they're never going to give up economics journals, but just a bit less in the so-called uh, field or specific economics journals. If you know nothing about well-being data, you might like to see the rough picture because this holds very generally across Western countries. It doesn't really matter what kind of happiness or mental well-being variable you choose. So this is the distribution of life satisfaction across a random sample of British people. There's about 75,000 observations here. Our researchers don't use the actual numbers. They just use the ordering. But seven in this scheme, this is from the British Household Panel Study, is uh, completely satisfied and one at the bottom is completely dissatisfied. If you're interested, 16% of British people say, I am completely satisfied with my life, which I always think shows a certain lack of imagination myself. <laughs> but there you go, that's the democracy of mental health and happiness surveys. People get to describe in their own words how they feel about their own life. Here's the classic article on herd behavior. If you go to the Web of Science or any big search engine and you type in HERD, H-E-R-D, and then you press the submit button, you will find across the sciences and the social sciences since the Second World War that there have been about 27,000 journal articles that have HERD in the title or in the abstract or in the keywords. Of course, a fair proportion of these are in zoology kinds of journals and general science journals. And if you order those by how commonly they've been referenced by other scholars later, or in other words, in the modern jargon, you order them by how commonly, how often they've been cited, C-I-T-E-D, then this article comes way at the top of the 27,000. Hamilton was an interesting man, William D. Hamilton. This article was written just a few streets away. 
He worked this in Imperial College. I never met him. Uh, to my knowledge, he died in the year 2000. He graduated with a second-class degree and always described himself as quite a poor mathematician. He'd had an accident with his father's explosives when he was a young man. He lost some fingers from his hand. He was deeply interested in nature. This is easily, as I've explained, the most cited. You could, by that narrow criterion, call it the most important article ever written on herd behavior. Insofar as I can tell from all my bibliometric searches, probably not perfect, but approximately okay, this article has never been cited in an economics journal. It has never been cited in a political science journal. It's never been cited in a sociology journal. Now, what are we to make of that? The most important paper on herd behavior in science uh, is, is completely untouched by the thinking of economists, or perhaps we should say vice versa. There's a stark dichotomy there. If herd behavior in humans is of a completely different character than herd behavior in non-human animals, then although it might not be terribly good scholarship, that Hamilton's paper appears to be unknown to the economists and the sociologists and others who are interested in group behavior, then that wouldn't be disastrous substantively. You can probably guess from the fact I'm standing here that I don't think we can relax about that issue. My own view is that an understanding of this article and of herd behavior in non-human animals is probably central to an understanding of herd behavior in ourselves. You may like to know he graduated from the London School of Economics. I almost fo forgot to put up this little clip. Nothing to do with biology or herding or mathematics or anything of that kind. He graduated with a master's in human demography from the school. So why does herding actually happen? I'd like you to imagine, ladies and gentlemen, I wonder if I can turn this on. I can. If I, talk, if I talk like that, can I be heard? Is that on? Yes, I guess it is. I'd like you to imagine that five seconds from now, four, three, two, one, there's an incredible crash in the lecture theater. Those doors fly open, and in comes a Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur. <laughs> can I get this down? A Tyrannosaurus Dex. T-Rex dinosaur, and the T-Rex is hungry, it looks up on the stage and it thinks, yummy, economist for dinner tonight, and it comes fast towards me. As far as we know, a T-Rex stood about twice as tall as I stand, it weighed probably four or five tons, it was uh, one of the fiercest predators, of course, in the dinosaur kingdom, and there's a debate about how quickly it could move, but generally the view is it could move at about 25 kilometers an hour, and that's fast enough to scare me, I don't know about you. So the T-Rex is advancing on me with its jaws open wide and it's, it's hungry tonight for economists. What is my rational strategy? What is my rational strategy? You might think that um, it all depends really on my absolute position in the two dimensions or perhaps even conceivably three dimensions in the room, my absolute position. And actually that's not true. What matters is my relative position. And the sensible strategy, strategy is the following. The T-Rex is advancing on me. And I just shrink back a little bit towards my good friend, Professor Richard Leonard. And I move like this. The T-Rex is coming faster and faster. I'm going like this. At the very last minute, the T-Rex is on me, and I just bob down a little like that. The T-Rex looks down on us and thinks, well, one 
The economist is much like another, <laughs> takes Professor Laird, lifts him up to the ceiling, shakes him around in the T-Rex jaws, runs out onto the strand, and everyone is happy. <laughs> well, every, almost everyone, and Richard is an empirical, an empirical utilitarian, so maybe even he could think of some criteria. <laughs> So, when I... so when a T-Rex dinosaur comes in the room, it's your relative position that matters. Why am I telling you that story? Because that's really Hamilton's account, missing the mathematics. That's really Hamilton's account of herd behavior. He doesn't talk about dinosaurs at all. He talks about frogs quite a lot. It's a, it's a great article. He opens by saying to the reader, imagine a, a lily pond with a serpent that lives in the pond and there are little frogs that live around the edge. And then he draws some little cartoons of frogs jumping. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is the most important mathematical article ever written on herd behavior. That's how it begins. So that's the, that's the notion. It is that by adjusting my relative position, I can achieve safety within a herd because it is relative position, it's not absolute position, that matters in herd groupings. Before Hamilton, he had a lot of trouble getting his article published, like most of his articles, by the way, even though he went on to be the most important mathematical biologist of the last hundred years. Before him, the standard theory had been that there was some sort of magical communitarian spirit in animals, and, and in fact, he went on to treat the problem in a very different way, a way very like a microeconomic theorist would in economics today uh, behave. He argued that irrational animal clusters, for exactly the reason that I got Lord Layard taken off into the strand in small pieces, irrational animal, animal clusters with the others because its relative position matters. This uh, instinct even seems to exist in young animals. For example, just in the last few days, uh, an article came out in Behavioral Brain Research about this rather long title about predatory threat in adolescent rats. What does Kendig et al. do? What do they do? Well, they take adolescent male rats, and no rats are harmed in the making of this article. Uh, they put them in a glass um, pen, and then they put a bit of cat fur in the pen. And it, interestingly, that induces tremendous huddling. You see that some received a drop of beer. I don't know whether that was the payment. Uh, that induces just the fur alone of the cat. No cat, no teeth. That alone induced relative to control rats who had no fur uh, exposure. That induced huddling at the edges of this glass arena into which they were put. I rather like this sentence. The huddling was most pronounced in those receiving intermittent beer, which I'm afraid reminds me of certain of my personal tutees through the years. Now, for zoologists and mathematical biologists, this is the leading, Hamilton's theory is now the leading account of this very fundamental behavior in the animal kingdom for herding. What do economists think about herd behavior? An hour or two ago, I've lost track of the time, I went into the LSE bookshop and looked up the introductory economics books being used for the early years of undergraduate economics here. I'm sure they're the same at Warwick, but I'm afraid I've lost track. And I looked in the references for anything to do with herd behavior or words of that kind, and there are none. 
Of course, that's just a way of saying that. Uh, in my discipline uh, of economics, in many social science disciplines, you can go through a whole bachelor's degree without learning anything about herding in humans. But insofar as there is a literature, there's a research literature which views herding as learning about important information. And I've, the reason I've put a fire bell up there uh, is because imagine the, the stewards at the back of the hall came in and they told some people clustered around the door that they're slightly worried that there's a fire in the London School of Economics and perhaps they should leave. And imagine that most of us don't hear that instruction, but people at the back start filing out. We would probably all eventually empty this room because we would copy what was going on and we would assume that somebody had important information and we would just follow on because the benefits could be high and the costs would be low. That doesn't do justice to the mathematical details of the main uh, economist's way of thinking about herd behaviour, but I hope you get the idea. That's a very different way to think about herd behaviour than the herding that goes on in the savannah and in the ocean and in the air. And that might worry us, that difference. Here's an evocative example, for example. Let's think about fashion. It's not the case that these young women have discovered that having their skirt length this level is what minimizes wind resistance through certain kinds of terrain, or that orange is particularly good for reflecting the light if the temperature goes to 71 degrees, or anything to do with the curvature has an evolutionary advantage. No, none of these things is true. Yet fashion, uh, Richard and I, is an approximation to, an, to a Martian, and most of you, I'm afraid, would look like we're wearing identical clothes. This is not because we've discovered that there's something really evolutionarily sound about this style of dress. This is just fashion, and that's a kind of herd behavior. We need an intellectual account of imitation in humans that can explain this very common sort of behavior. So I think we need to bear in mind human imitation and herd behavior is driven by uh, keeping up desires or desires over relative concerns over relative position. Uh, before I get to equations, let's reason in a broader way. Let's just do inductive social science, no t-tests or chi-squared tests, no calculus. Let's just think and look at the world if we're trying to understand this issue. Now, consider your wrist. That's possibly not a sentence you often see in economics kinds of lectures. Here's a watch. This watch has a black strap, a white face, a silver surround and silver hands. This watch keeps perfect time. We now have the technology to ensure that by the normal rhythm of life, because this watch loses only a few seconds a year, I'm going to call this a perfect timekeeping watch. You can go home tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not on commission, and buy this watch on the internet for five euros. Here's another watch. This watch has a black strap, a white face, a silver surround, and silver hands. This watch also keeps perfect time. The watch has the slight disadvantage, at least to my eyes, that when you glance at it, it's actually a little bit difficult to tell the time on it. <laughs> but it has the offsetting advantage that if you're unfortunate enough one day in your life, perhaps out of sheer boredom towards the end of Professor Ozell's lecture, to fall into a coma and get taken off in a, an ambulance with a blue flashing light to Charing Cross Hospital or wherever the nearest one is, and you wake up in March 2012, 
This watch will tell you the month in which you've awoken without you having to ask a nurse. You can go home tonight and buy this watch on the internet for 500,000 euros. Even with London house prices as they are, I guess you can get a flat in a Barbican, can you, for 500,000 euros. I'll just show you that again because this is, I think on most undergraduate economics textbooks, this is impossible. Five euros and 500,000 euros. Why am I interested in this? Well, I think that watches, especially men's watches, are an incredibly interesting commodity for a social scientist because they really only have one function. Now, you could argue that there's some jewellery value to a watch. You could, if you were really wanting to push the, the argument. But the truth is, in Western society, ladies and gentlemen, men, as an approximation, don't wear jewellery, and even if I wanted to, I could wear a large gold bracelet or a silver something or other, and so on. So whatever the intellectual framework that you want to bring to the world, and I understand it might be rather different from mine, I hope we could accept, both of us, that we need some conceptual explanation for the fact there's nothing to do with tests, there's nothing to, nothing to argue about. These are brute facts. We need a, an intellectual framework that can explain how, in equilibrium, you can have this. It's quite a remarkable fact. Here's a, because I'm, I've been interested in watches for a little while. Here's a, Ro a Rolex strap line, a Rolex advert, a watch defines a man's look and tone. Now I don't know about you, but every now and then I go through life and I come upon a sentence where I think, I know what every word means, it's just that when you arrange them in that string, I'm not really sure. And I still don't, I still don't know. Would you like to see the picture that goes with this Rolex strap line? I'm hoping that you do. Here it is. <laughs> Uh, joking, uh, joking aside, I mean, there's nothing very interesting about the fact that in a world where most men are heterosexual, it's nothing very remarkable that women are sometimes used in advertising. But what, what I hope that you and I might agree on, even if we disagree on many other things, is the following. Whatever is being sold here, right, whatever is being sold here, it has got nothing to do with timekeeping. The only way I can make sense of, of that kind of social science fact is that humans are frightened of falling behind. And there's a great deal of new evidence. Let's hypothesize that. People have been remarking on this possibility, including Richard Layard, for a long time. James, James Dusenbury, the late James Dusenbury, said these things for a long time at Harvard. Richard Easterlin, still going strong at the University of Southern California. Frank at Cornell, Fred Hirsch. Uh, the late Fred Hirsch was a distinguished political economy professor at Warwick, Runciman, and Veblen, and many others. There are now uh, many kinds of interesting modern evidence to support these conceptual notions from MRI scanners and from statistical work on well-being. And, and here are some of the papers. I, I strongly recommend them to you. By Armin Falk, who's a colleague of mine at Bonn. I'm working at Bonn uh, at the moment. I'll show you some of uh, Falk's work in detail in a second. Peter Kuhn has now, the paper's just come out, has an interesting paper of lottery winners. And he shows the following. This is from Dutch lottery data. He shows that if I live next door to Richard Layard, and Richard Layard wins the lottery, I am more likely to buy a new car. Okay, I'm going to say that again if I may. I live next, they know who lives next door to each other all across Holland. If Richard, my neighbor, wins the lottery, 
Just after that, I am more likely to buy a new car. Ori Hefetz, a talented young economist at Cornell, has just published or is publishing this paper on visible goods, and he shows that goods that I can see that you own, um, those, those seem to behave very differently from uh, goods of equal cost that are not visible to me. And finally, there's a fascinating, a rather clever but simple paper by David Card and colleagues where they have, I like to tell them, induced a huge amount of unhappiness in the University of California. I'll, I'll explain what they did. Loosely speaking, the University of California, of course, is a public university system. Loosely speaking, they split the University of California into two halves. One they thought of as a treatment group and one as a control group. Now, in California, there's a law that says any public employee has to uh, allow his or her salary to be public knowledge. So Card and colleagues send emails to half the University of California system saying, did you know that you have the right to know the pay packet of everybody in your department? And if you click on this website, you will find out what everyone in your office earns. And half of the so-called control group, half of the University of California, did not get this email. I don't know whether you can imagine what happened, but there was an awful lot of clicking. <laughs> and the, the punchline is that those who discovered in the treatment group, of course, the people who get this informative email, the people who discover that their pay is low relative to the average, I'm speaking rather loosely, get extremely fed up and start to quit. And interestingly, the people who get the information that their pay is rather high relative to the average, there's almost nothing that happens to them, to their job satisfaction or quit intentions. And that's why there's a real sense in which this experiment has induced a lot of unhappiness in the University of California, because they've depressed a great number of people, and those who discover their good fortune um, there's hardly any discernible effect on well-being. So if you ever get a chance to vote on whether salaries should be made public knowledge, at least on those grounds, there may be others, at least on those grounds, you might want to bear in mind that by making everyone's salaries public, you induce far more unhappiness than you do happiness. Uh, the two papers I'd uh, recommend, these are real uh, science papers, partly done by economists, partly by brain scientists, is this paper quite recently in Science, this paper a similar kind in the Journal of Public Economics. What on earth do they do? So Falk and colleagues, Thomas Doman at uh, Maastricht is another on the paper, there's a whole bunch. They take two people into their lab at one time and they lie them down in MRI scanners and they measure what goes on in their brain. Experimentally, the, the team alter the relative earnings of these people lying horizontally in their laboratory, and they measure what happens. The bottom line, you can probably guess, is that my blood flow in my in, uh, part of the brain, this is the reward area of the brain, goes up and down tremendously as Richard's earnings change. So we are seeing literally inside human brains the unhappiness and the happiness, you might say. I'm slightly overstepping the mark here, but let's say we're seeing literally the happiness and unhappiness inside people's brains as their relative wages change. Here's one of the sentences. The mere fact of outperforming the other subject positively affected brain reward-related brain areas. Uh, very briefly for specialists, I, I like this slide a lot, and if there are many econometricians in the audience, I, I would draw your attention to this. 
These are equations measured uh, vertically, and own income is what I'm earning, and others' income, let's say it's Richard's, that's, uh, that's his income. And you can see that these numbers are very, very similar, except, of course, one is positive, I'm enjoying high earnings, and I don't like it when Professor Layard earns more. These two numbers are almost equal and opposite. And why do I care about that, ma that mathematically? Because it means that blood oxygenation as a physical proxy for reward emotion, you might say, is explained here, at least in many of these uh, conditions, by pure relative wages. So inside your brain, you want to be high up the monkey pack. Uh, I'm not implying that people walk around like this thinking about it. I, some. Uh, some people have heard versions of this talk and they find it insulting to think that somehow they, they're these crass, they are these crass individuals who care about being richer than everyone around them. I think most of this is subconscious. Here's a different kind of evidence. We now know from happiness surveys, estimating well-being equations, that relative income comes in strongly positive. People like being relatively richer. Absolute riches is not the key. Again, that's very consistent with the brain science evidence. You can find the uh, literature in places like uh, Lutma's QJE article. I've got a hand in an early paper, Andrew Clark's work, Gordon Brown at Warwick, Card, and many others. Uh, this is uh, my colleague, Andrew E. Clark, who worked at the Center for Economic Performance a long time ago. And if you think he looks like a Parisian playboy, that's because he is a Parisian playboy. I tell him he's a Brazilian player anyway. Why would we care about these things? Let's look at some data. This is the price of housing in the United States over 100 years, expressed relative to the price of other things. And you can see that this is about two, the year 2003. That's about 2003. So we have here so we have here, as I said, 100 years of the real price of housing in the United States of America. And you can see that, although it was low during the, the Great Depression, really the, that price of uh, what it costs to buy a home has, had run essentially flat for nearly 100 years. Then in the year 2003, it reached its highest ever level for one century, and then it doubled again. It reached the highest level and then it doubled again up to here. People were still buying houses at that point. There were still many economists saying there is no housing bubble. The Americans were not worried about this. Of course, as an approximation, I suppose it's fair to say that this graph is what has caused the financial crisis that's affected the whole world at, at bottom. Of course, mortgage-backed securities played a role along the way, but this is what lies at, uh, beneath it. This, my graph is slightly out of date. This has now fallen tremendously, and it's still dropping like a, a stone. I think it's very hard to make sense of this diagram unless you have some way, uh, some way of thinking about herding. Here's another example from uh, earlier on in the decade. This is the dot-com bubble. This is when the internet stocks became fashionable. We had a huge spike in prices, what we now think of as a bubble, and then uh, the prices of those stocks declined about 80 or 90 percent. Now herding is far more uh, common than just in economics. 
Uh, this is what you might describe, I, I think I'm the first person in history to describe this as the hair bubble. <laughs> you may like to know that in 1970, I was 17 years old. I thought about showing you a picture of my own hair from 1970, but uh, my daughter Felicity is in the audience. I just thought it'd be too painful for all of you and her if I did. Uh, of course, there are many other manias. Here's the hat mania of the 1800s. I hope it's clear this is not driven in any interesting way by informational learning, in my opinion. Um, more seriously, certainly very seriously, all around the Western world, many doctors and uh, mental health professionals and others are concerned with peer choices, health choices on smoking and drinking, particularly among the young. And without passing any moral judgments one way or the other, we might think that herding, herd behavior, peer effects must be, surely must be very important and there's work by Christakis at Harvard Medical School, a good guy to suggest that with Fowler and others. Uh, maybe even, um, this is much more complicated territory, but maybe even what went on in the summer of uh, 2011 in the UK. Just in the, in the middle of that riot period, I was locking up my house in, uh, to, from the inside, I mean, for the end of the night in St. David's in Wales. And I went to bed, and an hour later, there was a crash of broken glass, and I saw dark shadows. I'd just been watching the news about the looters all across Britain. I saw dark shadows moving up and down just outside my gatepost in a very quiet part, and I yelled a certain amount of abuse, I'm afraid, out of the window. And then I discovered there was a perfectly normal explanation for, for what was going on. But of course, that era, if you remember, it was one where fear, uh, confusion as well, gripped e even presumably with reasonably sane British individuals. And in the issues of health surrounding weight choices, this is a big issue in uh, social policy, whatever your views on it, uh, peer choices and herd behaviours also seems very important. I want to do a little bit of mathematics now because I want to think about how would we make sense of all this in a more careful and more formal way. You remember I said at the beginning that a key role is going to be played by how your happiness is affected, the curvature of your happiness with respect to status or more generally relative position, your comparison with others in whatever domain, weight or income, whatever it is. A key role here will be played by whether your happiness accelerates with status, that's the purpley line if you can see it, or it's decelerating. Which of them is true of you, do you think? If I said to you, so you like status, you can choose any domain, maybe you're a tennis player, I don't know what, you're an antiques collector, you care about money, whatever it is that you really care about, fashion, slimness, I don't know. Imagine that your status in that domain that you really care about rises and you're, you're pleased about that. But the question is, it's really hard to have the intuition here. Do you get happier at it in an accelerating way or a decelerating way? Accelerating we'd call convex from below and decelerating is just diminishing marginal returns, what we usually teach to undergraduates, but nothing to do with status. So that's concave. <coughs> If we think about, like an economist would, the utility from two sources, the direct utility U of A and the relative utility from my A, my action being better than yours, then we can make some progress. 
I'm going to call U of A. A is an action. Maybe it's how flashy my watch is. You can choose. U is my utility. It's a bit of happiness. If my car, imagine its cars, can go faster, then I really can. There's a direct return to that. This is what the car manufacturers would tell you. Mercedes and BMW would tell you that there's nothing to do with status in our cars. It's because they are functionally far better. And, of course, there is an element of truth in that some cars are faster than others. Would you like to see my faster car? There you go. Okay. There's a second bit to utility, and that's the status component. A is my action. It's how fast my car is, how big my watch is. A star is yours. So I like having a big gap. I like uh, exceeding you, if only rather subconsciously. If my car can go fast, then I feel superior to others as I drive to Oxford. These are the two bits. It's an open scientific question how large those two elements are in your utility function or mine, your happiness function or mine. But my instinct, I'm afraid, is that the status component is much, much bigger. If we put these together, we have a maximan, something we're going to care about as an agent. Thinking back to watches, say Richard Layard gets a nicer watch and he flaunts it all over the London School of Economics and Europe and the world, flaunts it in front of me. How should I act? That's the question. Well, it all depends on the curvature of my utility function over status, over watches. That's what it depends on. If we think about the marginal benefit and the marginal cost, I get a direct utility from having U prime, a slightly better watch, let's say. I get a, an extra status component, V prime, from having a better watch, and C is a cost, a marginal cost. Around the optimum, we can do a little bit of mathematics. I propose, probably in this audience at this time, not to dwell on that too much. But here's the bottom line. If the utility I get from status is concave, so it's rising, but it's flattening, then I will imitate you as you get higher status items. Subconsciously, I compete with you. It's because when the gap between you and me shrinks, my marginal utility from status rises. And if there's accelerating utility from status, then I will do the opposite of you. If Richard gets a fancy watch, or a fancy car, or a fancy apartment, I do what some Americans call downshifting. I deliberately turn my back on the materialism. I say I don't approve of that. And I go in the opposite direction. I wear a yet cheaper watch, you might say. That's the logic of this mathematics. Concavity of that bit of the happiness function leads to emulation or imitation. And convexity, you might think remarkably enough, leads to deviance. I do the opposite. Now, why would we need a theory that can have both these curious kinds of behavior? Well, take the case of obesity and thinness. Over the last few decades, we've seen a really remarkable outcome, I think. I remember I went to the United States in 1983, and of course I go back a lot, and there have been enormous changes in normal body weight. But at the same time, even though most people have got far fatter in Western society, some people, particularly women, uh, have chosen to go in exactly the opposite direction. They've chosen greater thinness than was true in the 60s. So somehow or other, we need a conceptual framework that can explain both obesity and anorexia at the same time in a society. Not an easy thing to do, you would think. 
When might V dot be convex? Remember, that's the bit that's going to give me anorexia in the face of growing obesity. I've thought about this for a while. I don't have magic solutions on this, but let's think about Nadal and Federer. Let's think about Wimbledon. Imagine you are a fabulous tennis player. Richard Layard is a good tennis player, by the way. Imagine you're going up the world rankings. I want you to think about how you feel about the extra happiness. See, here, you're going to have strongly accelerating happiness. This was where the happiness is going to be convex over status because going from 8th in the world to 7th in the world is a fantastic thing. But now imagine going from 3rd in the world to 2nd to 1st. I hope you might agree that in this kind of thought experiment, this is not diminishing marginal utility from extra status. This is powerfully accelerating. So maybe, this is a clue, maybe the happiness from status goes convex, that is sharply accelerating, at the extreme end of a status distribution. I know it sounds weird mathematics, but if you just live with me, what might be the prediction from that? Well, we would see that the extremes would occur uh, at the most elite end of society. And I've clipped this in partly because Paris Hilton is a socialite who's known for being thin, and, and also because of this quote from the famous Mrs. Simpson in British history, you can never be too rich or too thin. Quite a remarkable, quite a remarkable thing to say when you think about it. Uh, overall, in my judgment, this parameter, which is the curvature of the happiness you get from your status, whether you're conscious of it or not, I think that's one of the most fundamental parameters in the whole of social science. To the best of my knowledge, it's not discussed in any economics book or sociology book or political science book and probably not in any psychology text as well. We have very little idea of what sign or size this thing is. Of course, you may, there's no reason why you have to agree with me that this is a fundamental parameter, but I hope even if you disagree with me, you might find it provoking. Uh, why might any of this matter? Here's an evocative quote. In a poor country, a man proves to his wife that he loves her by giving her a rose, but in a rich country, he must give a dozen roses. You know, there's a lot of very profound, simple social science wisdom in that sentence, in my opinion. I wonder if the person in the room who wrote that sentence would like to raise his or her hand. Uh, this is economist Richard Laird. He apparently has forgotten. <laughs> However, I've got uh, news for Richard. Now, partly because uh, I had to become familiar with the teleflorist.co.uk website quite recently. I shan't tell you why, perhaps. Not for the reason I'm about to explain, a related one. A t Twelve roses, ladies and gentlemen, twelve roses to prove that he loves her. Let me introduce you to the love special, Richard. <laughs> and the serious point here, uh, apart from the fact that I hope Richard now knows what he should be giving for Christmas, <laughs> is that, of course, it's a very apt example of, of precisely the process that Layard has worried about for a long time and other scholars. That is, if we live in a world where we care intensely about relative income, and of course the tide of economic growth just lifts all the boats together, two BMWs, three BMWs, four BMWs, 50 roses, see we have a fundamental practical problem as well as an intellectual one in society. 
And if you think that this is how the world works, then really we need to tell the politicians that to think about how we're going to respond rather than running away from this deep fact if you believe it in human beings. And this might be, I like this picture. I like his mobile phone. I knew where I was with these giant mobile phones. Uh, this, is, uh, this captures the spirit of what might be going on in Western society. Maybe we are all just running, earning more money, getting richer and richer, comparing to our neighbours, up and up and up, effort levels higher, and not going anywhere. We have not proved that that's true. There's something called the Eastland Paradox, which shows that happiness data run flat through time, which is consistent with it. But we haven't proved it's true. A second possibility, going back to hiring, of course, is that we're going to have, in a world of this kind, excessive booms and busts. We're going to have overshooting. We're going to have dot-com bubbles, stocks that have never made a dollar, shooting up in price, then crashing down, and similarly for house prices and so on. Maybe this gives us a clue to the credit crunch, and then I'm going to, quite soon I'll stop, and I'm delighted to take your points and questions. When your rewards depend on relative position, it's, it's routinely going to be dangerous to question the herd mentality. The safe thing is just to, whether you're working for a giant investment bank or you're working in a university that's researching something that's really crazy, but everyone's doing it, you're following the trend. It will actually be dangerous to question the logic of what's going on. It, it's, it's sensible just to go with the flow, even if you don't believe it. In the great dot-com crash, when staggering amounts of money, staggering amounts of money were lost, it was the dot-com analysts who were correct, who said this is never going to last, who lost their jobs. The analysts who just went with the crowd, just stayed in the middle of the herd, they didn't lose their jobs. I had a little bit of um, a sense of this because in the middle of the 2000s I worried in the newspapers and on television about high house prices and people didn't want to listen to that. In fact, my timing wasn't very good. I went too early, and that's also very common of speculative bubbles. It's incredibly difficult to get the timing right, but it pays the individuals, unfortunately, to just live with it and not to question the group, even if it is madness in the group, because typically they'll come in for flack and lose their jobs. To end, what now happens in financial markets just a mile from here or so or in Wall Street? Not only do the brokers and the traders all have deep inside them, I think, for evolutionary reasons, concerns about relative income, but now their pay packets are tied to their relative income performance. So not only do we have innate relative concern, right, we've exacerbated that, we've multiplied it by having pay packets that, that don't depend on how well you do for your client, not really, especially not in the long run, but rather how you're doing relative to the other traders. And that makes me think of the sheep in Hardy's example, and, and that worries me. It's dangerous to uh, reinforce the intrinsic relative concerns of humans by pay packets that are, make things even more relativistic, if you understand my jargon here. Let me sum up. In my opinion, in the London School of Economics, imitation and is central to human life for, for all social scientists and people who care about policy. We don't think about this hard, but our, our life is full of imitation. It's often driven by relative feelings. My assertion would be, but I couldn't prove it, that 
Most of the time it's driven by relative feelings. And that links it back to biology and to real herds. The most famous article on herd behavior has never been cited in an economics journal. And that's a worry to me. The crucial parameter in all of this, I appreciate the most technical thing I said is, imagine I get happiness from status and I draw a giant graph of my happiness. If that's like the left-hand side of a mountain rising but at a diminishing rate, then I will emulate your status and will get keeping up with the Joneses. If it's convex, I will tend to do the opposite. I think we need a better understanding of herd behavior in social science generally, in economics and the other social sciences. And finally, particularly for the younger members of the audience, in my opinion, in your lifetime, the madness of crowds is going to be back in some fundamental way. It will not be houses. Right? It will not be dot-com stocks. It will not be tulips as it was in the Netherlands a long, long time ago. It's very difficult to say what the next speculative, speculative bubble and crowd madness will be. It might be water, although I don't think so. It could be oil. More likely, it's got, going to be something with a technological, new technological character. I may not be around to see it, but you will, if you're considerably younger. In my view, you will undoubtedly see the madness of crowds come back in some really fundamental way. And if it's any use at all from this lecture, maybe you might want to bear in mind that you don't want to be that sheep on its way down to Hardy's rocks. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I told you you'd get something uh, very interesting, uh, and you have. Um, who would like to start this off? Uh, who would like to answer the first question? Yes. You, um, you talk about the madness of crowds, as you call it, but um, it seems to me, uh, from some things that you said, that, it, that the best thing to do is simply to follow the madness, um, the best way to survive. So, I mean, how, how do you... How do you resolve that situation because um, yes. inciting people into madness seems to be case. You make a very good point. I individually, individually, nearly all of the time, it will pay you to go with the herd. But if we're thinking about how the economy functions or how our society functions or the collective well-being of the group, then maybe we need to think about how to alter that and to bring in different incentives. In my admittedly somewhat mathematical way of thinking, Maybe we need to move away from reward functions that are heavily concave from below. Now, that would that'd be a very difficult thing to explain to politicians. So the, the broad point is, if we believe this kind of thing, maybe we, maybe we need a policy for dealing with herd behavior. Whereas at the moment, we, we really pretend in the social science disciplines, in my opinion, apart from a bit of cognitive science in psychology, we, we really pretend most of the time to students, that this is not a big issue, in my view. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you for your speech earlier. I think Keynes also picked up on this when he, he came up with a quote about conventional wisdom, sort of saying that um, it's easier to, um, su to succeed in a herd than to um, succeed alone. And it seems like it has been going on in history and there's never been a solution to it. And I just wondered if, practically, it is possible, because politicians do get caught up in the 
you know, in the whole sort of um, madness as well. And um, we're almost sort of helpless in some ways to, when, the, when the crowd sort of, you know, really gets momentum. Yes, you put it well there, I think. There, there is a sense in which individuals, large numbers of individuals are helpless, just like the, the sheep are getting too near, where the herd gets too near the edge of the cliff. But it's our job as social scientists and thinkers about the world, if we're any good for anything, to, to try and work out, well, how could we design a world where we could do better as a society? Uh, of course, uh, Keynes and others have mentioned herd behavior. And we have a small literature, as I, I've implied, on herding as informational advantage. But most of these ideas are, are quite absent from the social science literature, apart from the tiny bits that touch on mathematical biology. I'm afraid I don't know how to, in detail, fix all of this. So uh, this is a highly imperfect lecture for all sorts of reasons. But of course, I'd like people to start thinking about uh, facing up to humanity and then thinking, well, how the heck are we going to stop this happening next time? because it will happen next time. Thank you very much. Um, my question is really a follow-on from the previous two questions, and it is um, how do... Um, I think most of us here are very well aware of the uh, international reputation of uh, your group at Warwick University, and in fact I'm going to discuss this tomorrow with a um, external student there who's currently working in Istanbul. Um, okay. do the mover, movers and shakers react um, in all means, including their body language, to what you have uh, said to them? Because to my mind, I think I've certainly seen this very much where the tendency is to impose a very high burden of proof which can only be um, demonstrated after the event. Mm. So therefore, the um, turmoil becomes too late. We had an example of this yes. in the British Civil Service where um, the evidence that a, a certain person posed a risk was not fully um, understood because there was no proof and only a few were saying it and the herd went along and said, oh well, nothing to worry about. And as a result, he did arrange the murder of his boss. So his boss was murdered in circumstances where it could have been prevented. Thank you. Okay. I, I shan't comment on the details of the very last point, but the, 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 the broad gist of what you said is extremely interesting. Actually, Richard's views would be would be interesting to me on this, as he's thought about the same things in a, in a different way, probably, but it's many of the same things for a long time. I think most politicians are extremely aware that humans are obsessed with relativities. They're extremely aware of that. But they don't know how to change policy in a way that would solve the intellectual problem they're aware of uh, whilst retaining office, which is what they're more concerned about, ultimately, I guess. And I mean, it is a, this is a, a tricky okay. issue. I, I All of, sorry. could I just finish? Sorry. All of commercial interest is also suspicious of these kinds of arguments, not on herding, although they don't want to hear particularly about herding, but on the relativity argument. Why? Because 
if people start to take this too seriously, um, commercial interests might start to think, well, maybe people won't buy that uh, 500,000 euro watch. Maybe people start to think, what is the point of just competing with our neighbours per se? I, I'm not trying to upset anyone um, either tonight. We're trying to think our way logically through a problem. It may be that there are very fundamental policy implications that would, that, that would upset a lot of people. Uh, but that's not necessarily the point. Somebody back there. If, if we could perhaps sit. Where are you? May I speak? There, yes, yes. Hi. Um, if we could perhaps expand that idea of relativity um, um, okay. from the inanimate watch to, to um, social groups, comparative social groups. Um, an off-made comparison is between um, um, Asian societies and their sort of collective socialization as opposed to um, the West and its kind of um, um, in individual kind of um, mentality, um, yeah. individual aspiration, um, and what that what that can perhaps say about about herding behaviour, um, that perhaps uh, um, although individual individualization is, is is something that's rewarded, but it, it seems to be when it when it sort of anticipates where the herd is going, um, um, rather than proposing something something different. Um, so I'm interested in this idea of, 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 of deviance and, and what, what motivates um, deviance in the herd and what, what consequences that, that, that may have. Yeah. You've touched on quite a few issues there. Um, on West and East, I'm not sure entirely what to say. I've heard this line of argument quite a lot in the past, partly in my happiness work, that uh, humans in the East perhaps have different values or a different happiness function, different kind of ha determinants of happiness. And that may be true. I, I suppose I'm doubtful that there's much difference in deep relativistic concern because I think if we put uh, citizens from the East in these MRI scanners and we change their relative income, we'd see much the same blood flow. Or, or in other words, I think that um, this has probably been bred into us by uh, trillion years of evolution and it's just deep inside all kinds of humans. On deviance, well I tend to think in this rather mathematical way as deviance comes from the convexity of the utility function. Uh, but if I look in the sociological literature then of course that's not how people have conceived of deviance and somehow or other we need to, or at least if I want to have an impact, I need to get my analytics consistent with the way real experts on deviance think. I don't really want to. You had a no, I'll come in a little bit later. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you spoke about some of the sort of negative um, impacts of herding. I just wonder whether there might be some positive. Uh, sometimes herding can be a positive, for yes. example, if okay. there's positive health behaviours. Yes. Um, and are there any kind of criteria by which we can think about when it's good and when it's bad? Yeah, a fantastic question. Uh, presumably, even in, in the case of herd behavior driven by imitative, sheer imitative desires because of relative concern, we might be able to exploit that. If, there are plenty of people who think that Britain should be thinner, for example. I mean, I'll just, I'm not going to draw a judgment about that particularly, but lots of people, lots of doctors think we should be thinner. And in, in principle, this way of thinking, the fact that humans are intrinsically imitative, that could work in the other direction. If somehow the government could induce some people to become thinner, if that was the criterion, then at least my way of thinking, and I hope you think it plausible, that would 
there'd be a kind of ripple effect whether norms readjust. But beyond that, I, um, I, I'm not sure if I have a, a great answer to your interesting uh, questions. Um, I, I'm, I wanted to raise, I don't, I don't know, is there, isn't there anybody here who, who uh, wants to stand up for rational expectations and all of that? <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> well, let me. Uh, I mean, we have colleagues in, in the financial markets group um, who would agree with some of what you've said, but, but not all of it, um, on the question of financial boom and bust. Um, so they would say, yes, it's true that people are being paid, fund managers are being paid uh, on the basis of their relative performance. Um, and um, uh, that is basically because um, it's the way to get business for the fund. Um, and uh, there's asymmetric information between the, you know, the people who are investing and the fund managers and the only way to have some expectation that you're going to do better than you might otherwise do is to go for the person who's doing relatively well. Mm. So, so they would agree with that, that that's, that's, that that's a strategy which is being adopted as a result of the informational asymmetry. Mm. Um, but, but then they would say why do the investors um, then, why does the whole system then generate this momentum? Um, and the answer is that the, uh, the money piles into whatever is, it, whatever is going up, uh, or whatever asset is going up, so it, they pile into uh, stocks and out of cash when stocks are going up. Um, and that's an entirely rational thing to do um, if you're investing for the short term. So then coming to these questions people are asking, what could you do to offset these, these tendencies? Uh, then you could have a Tobin tax or something like that to, to, to stop this, the, and to make transactions much more expensive and stop this very short term uh, later investment, which would then, of course, reduce the tendency for uh, this process of momentum to build up. But I, I, I don't know if you've engaged in, in controversy. There was not ships passing in the night, but head-on controversy with the rational expectations people and their explanations. Okay. I think this. the straightforward answer to that is no, I haven't. I seem to have been involved in a bit of controversy here or there, but not on this issue. And we would need, to, first of all, to keep an open mind. That seems important. I'm not against neoclassical economics, far from it. Uh, really, we need to take the best from modern economics, but, but just bring in the best from other things as well. Mm -hmm. Anyone in financial theory or any other part of the world who wants to argue that financial work markets work very effectively and can be relied upon and the world is great, then they forgive me, that they really need to sit down in front of these huge spiky bubble graphs and just think. They, they need to think about what's going on in the world at, at the moment. It's not plausible to argue that these enormous bubbles and crashes are, are an efficient outcome, in my opinion. I'll, 
I'll go along with sensible tests, but my intuition is that can't be a sensible view. I didn't. I don't think I explained. <laughs> These people actually are in a, a centre which was set up by Paul Woolley, who was appalled by the dot-com bubble while he was an investor, and people disinvested in his fund because he wouldn't follow the market. Okay, I didn't know and that. So, so he was sent, and he, he founded a centre for the study of capital market dysfunctionality. So that, they are interested in showing the capital market is dysfunctional, but their explanation is not simple, you know, instinctive copying. Their explanation is rational behaviour on the part of all these different people in the face of asymmetric information, and you know, it may or may not be convincing, I suspect there's, there's elements of both, quite frankly. Probably. Uh, the, there's truth, some truth in what you're saying and some truth in what they're saying. Um, and that there are things, uh, given that it's incredibly dysfunctional, um, that can be done about it, such as a, a Tobin tax. I mean, on, on the, the other question of what can be done, of course, uh, I mean, I have pointed out for a long time um, that insofar as the status race um, leads to people uh, putting uh, excessive effort into the pursuit of relative success when you can't, uh, at the level of society, increase the amount of relative success. Um, that this this is a, a case where um, actually taxation of the sources of success, say of income, whatever it is, which uh, gives people their relative status, um, is is rather than distorting corrective and an efficient thing to do. You know this argument. Yes, I do. Um, and <laughs> I still think that's an extraordinarily persuasive argument. We, we are told, I mean, the normal doctrine in economics is that the efficient tax rate is zero, uh, and anything else is distorted. You, I mean, it might be justified for the sake of the things that it bought, but um, it, it in itself has a cost greater than would follow from lump sum taxation. And that may not be true at all, because it may be that actually taxation is corrective and, and is about the only thing that um, preserves our work-life balance. Mm. I, I'm not going to sign up to exactly that kind of policy prescription. It may be that society comes around to that. Now, I wouldn't be shocked if in some decades our societies come around to that. But at the moment, it seems to me the sensible thing is to try to sift the evidence and get our thinking straight on how the world works. And once we've agreed on that much more than we have at the moment, then we can figure out how to fix the world. Well, I think that's a good moment on which to end. <laughs> you, you've given us so much to think about and uh, done it so beautifully, Andrew. Thank you very, very much.